Welcome back to the flip side. Galen Clavio, Brian Moritz, back with you for another fun-filled episode of whatever it is that we do here at the flip side. <laughs> do we have good? We don't have a, a marketing team on our branding for that, do we? Uh, we um, no. Uh, the okay. team, I think, is us and all that extra free time that we both have in our schedules. Um, right. So yeah, no, we don't. I don't know what the flip side brand would be. Be you know, random talking beer. I don't know. Um, and not even beer when we record in the afternoon. Like no, this, no, I've got I've got Earl Grey tea right now, so that is definitely off brand. Or I have tap whatever. water. So, <laughs> yeah. Your tap water is lovely in Bloomington. I can't say Thank that. Thank you. Yeah, no, it's it's uh, it's from the limestone caverns underneath. You know, that's that's the important place to get water. I, I didn't realize there was limestone left after all the buildings were. were oh, with it. buddy, there's so much limestone here. We don't know what to do with it. Um, <laughs> it's a lot of a lot of limestone. Anyway, uh, let's go ahead and dive right into things. Uh, you uh, you had a little vacation where there was beer involved here. recently. Yes. Yes, we. I, I just came back while, while there was no episode last week. Uh, we just came back from a week I spent with some friends of mine from college and our and all of our families. We rented a house, and we rented a house in uh, Plymouth, Massachusetts, right off the beach. Uh, they're lovely week, perfect weather, right off the great beach, great pool, uh, a lot of good times. Traffic sucked, but it's Boston, near Boston, so what are you going to do? Um, but my friend uh, and beer writer, uh, and I don't know if he's a friend of the show, but I'll grant him status because he took me to Trillium, uh, Jared Pavani, uh, we took a, a yeah. He, he counts as a friend of the he show. Counts as a friend of the show. Okay. Yeah. Uh, he uh, he. We went up to a Trillium Brewery, and it was my first trip up there. I know you had been up there earlier this year when you were in uh, New England for I think a wedding, and absolutely lived up to the hype. I mean, it's one of it's kind of one of those uh, almost mythical breweries that I think you hear about when you're kind of in craft beer circles and you kind of know a little bit about, but they don't really just dis- like like you. I think. I don't know how widely they distribute, if at all, like you may only be able to get the beer at the brewery. Um, But we went and uh, I have to call up their website to see, to remember the names of the beer that I got. Um, They were very good. I'm just blanking. It made made a big impact on you. The beers were great, but there's so many of them. And it was funny because we got in line. We were right there at 11 o'clock and there was a line of people waiting. And um, I got what, let's see. So I got the uppercase double IPA, uh, okay. which is outstanding. It's a, it's a heavy beer. It's a double IPA. So it's like a nine and a half percenter. Um, but it, it doesn't have that like super overly hoppy feel that like sometimes a dogfish 90 or 120 will have, or one of those really good kind of citrus flavors. And the only reason I got it was apparently when we went, we went a week ago, I think today. And that was like the beer that they like, it was an uppercase day like that. They, they were putting that out and that's what people could buy that day. And I'm like, well, might as well, that's what I'm going to get. So I got yeah. that and uh, it's very good. Brought a couple of those home. And I also brought home uh, or I got for my wife. She drank it all while we were there. Their number 54 blonde ale, uh, which mm-hmm. was incredibly good. I'm not a huge blonde ale guy, but it was very good. And I forget. And we had, we had a, a sampling there. I think I had the fi- one of the other 50 beers, 51 maybe. But it was all, like every beer I tasted there was outstanding. So just, That's it, good. yeah, if you're up in the Massachusetts area and are a craft beer person to the point that you'll put up with us talking about craft beer, Trillium is a beer free, uh, one for you to check out. Yeah, when I went there back in May, I, I have four down in my untapped app that I that I have a record of drinking. There might have been more, but these are the four that I rated. But I got the Night and Day, which was a, an Imperial Stout. Okay. 
which was very good. The Fort Point Pale, the Summer Street IPA, and the Melcher Street IPA. Okay. Um, all of them come highly recommended. Excellent. Yes, they were. It was everything that we, uh, everything we had was outstanding. It was very good. They also had, I'm looking at their website right now uh, to remember, they had uh uh, That's really our brand, guys that look at websites and talk to you. <laughs> I believe it was PM Dawn, the Imperial Stout with cold brew coffee. Uh, I ch- I tried that out again, very very good. So, um, yeah, uh, I guess Trillium would be our flip side bre- beer of the week, just as a kind of umbrella term. I'm gonna go. Let's call them the Brewery of the Month. Brewery for, of the Month. I like that. Month. Yeah, that's that's our Brewery of the Month. Excellent. That's that'll be our. We should we should add that to the list of things that we occasionally do. On the show. <laughs> Our occasional set pieces, Brewery of the Month. I like it. Good deal. Right. So uh, stuff to talk about today. I noticed this topic immediately and I had interest in it because I also deal with this. But uh, apparently your kid got a Kindle. Yes. So this is also off of vacation. Um, my uh, my kid who's now seven. Or should we should we call it that your kid got a library? Uh, no. She had, well, she got the Kindle. Fu- no, I see what you're doing there. Um, yeah. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> wow! Do you, hey, hey, on your fancy soundboard, do you have a rim shot? Um, no, but I have the ballpark sound. There we go. Uh, that's the closest we get to a rim shot. Even but better. Anyway, go on. Even better. No, uh, we can talk about that idiot's column too. Um, I'm happy to to rip that. Although I think it's been so ripped apart the shreds. Yeah. I, I mean, I will say I have one quick thing to say about that, which is this is the problem with Twitter. I'm gonna blame uh, this I, once again. I'm gonna blame everything on Twitter. It's like, yeah, that was a dumb take. But a it was a was it was in Forbes. Like when was the last time we looked at like Forbes and said, "Woo, there's there's some serious intellectual heft going on there," right? Um, and then B, it's like, okay, we I got it after like the fortieth retweet quote, like, oh, you know, the, the, this idiot or duh, this is stupid. It's like, okay, like everybody felt compelled to dogpile, and it's just it just it it embodied everything I dislike about the medium, where it's it became less about the obviously bad message and more about demonstrating your solidarity with all the people that thought it was a bad message. Sure. There's a bunch, there's a, there, there's, there's more than a touch of virtual virtue signaling going on here. What I genuinely love, and I will get back to my kid's actual Kindle, but what I genuinely love is like when librarians start throwing shade at a guy, like it is amazing. And they're all like every library that has a Twitter account was tweeting stuff out and kind of taking this guy, taking this guy's ridiculous position to task. And I and and I can and I can get behind that. It did kind of get, you know, by this point, I don't think you have anything to add. Nobody has anything to add to it. Um, but anyway, I still saw tweets today about it. So I obviously people disagree with you on that front. Well, you know, maybe the library has to get their social media team together. Maybe the, the social media person with the password was off yesterday, Monday. Um, right. But um, but no. So my kid, uh, this is based on vacation and friends of ours, their their kids who are around the same age as my daughter, who's seven and a half. She um, they all had uh, Kindle fires of various age and, and use. Uh, on vacation and my kid has been rocking an original ipad mini since she was maybe two and a half to three years old like it's been a long time since she's had that and um and we it just got to the point that like there was nothing that you can really add or do with the ipad mini anymore it's kind of like that phased obsolescence right it's like six years old right and uh so she started asking for the kindle and uh uh, we decided to 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 up the up the ante and get it. So we, she got her Kindle Fire Eight today. She's upstairs playing with it right now. It's wonderfully timed for a day when I'm recording a bunch of podcasts that she gets Absolutely. this and, and can and can use it. But it's noteworthy, I think, for me. Just 
in, in talking about technology and that it's aside from a few over the top TV boxes that we've played with, it's the first major piece of electronics that's not an Apple product that we've bought. Um, and are using in a very, and I can't remember, you know, probably since before we both, my wife and I both got our first iPhones and we've had iPhones since geez, 2010, 2011 now. Um, and I mean, one of the great things, you know, the Kindle we got is the, it's the designed for kids. So it comes preloaded with a bunch of games and apps and a bunch of like parental controls. It comes in a case. It's all, it's, it's really well-made. Um, and I mean, two things that, that set it apart for me from kind of an, I, the Apple ecosystem, one thing I'm noticing, one thing is obviously the price. I mean, you can't get a new iPad for under 350 bucks. And this was significantly less than that. But also what was amazing about it is my kid was playing on it 12 minutes after it was delivered from the post office, like open it up, you know, go through a couple setup things. We had done some setup the night before, which helped, but like a couple things, couple like downloads and she's on it in less than 10 minutes. And it always blows me away when something is like that. And uh, I don't know it just seems like a really good device uh, for kids and for families, you know, pretty kid friendly, pretty kid locked down um, and made to be. It's interesting that it's kind of definitely, you know, made as a consumption device as opposed to the iPad, which is kind of this all in one deal. But you guys are I'm, I'm trying to remember from when uh, Eris and I were hanging out a few months ago, but she's a Kindle kid, right? She does. And it's funny that you're saying all of this because I've been progressively less satisfied with the overall uh, Kindle infrastructure, to be honest with you. Oh, really? How come? Uh, well, so all the things you say are correct. Like, it's easy to get started. Uh, the, the, the kid-focused version is pretty straightforward, um, but it's very difficult. Like, so we took a trip to California last month, and it was it was not the easiest thing in the world to, like, figure out the Byzantine process of going back into the adult account, downloading stuff, and then having it pop up on the kid account. Okay. Um, you know, there a lot of times, like, things are portioned out season by season as opposed to show by show. Hmm. So, like, Bubble Guppies Season 2 is a different access window than Bubble Guppies Season 4. Well, Season 2 is uh, garbage. You just want to go right to Season 4 anyway. I would argue season two is actually the best. I have never, I've never um, seen Bubble Guppies. I was just throwing r- random words out, but go ahead. Um, the the um, and and I think the big thing is the battery life is really bad. Like, oh, is, okay. It, like if you're watching video on that thing, I maybe I have outsized expectations, but it just seems like it drains really, really fast now. Hmm. Um, and it's I could be wrong. Uh, maybe maybe the iPad would be worse, but I know also. From my own Kindle Fire, which I got, I got them in kind of a package deal. Um, I'm really getting irritated at it because um, two things: one, for adults, there the app situation is really bad compared to either Apple or Samsung. Um, like I tried to download the GoGo in-flight video player and couldn't on the fire like it just didn't exist there there you had to do some kind of weird ass uh thing that didn't really work particularly well um so i didn't get a chance to use the in-flight uh stuff and there's several other apps that just don't appear to to be particularly available on the the ecosystem oops sorry uh the other issue that i'm running into is that amazon started this thing where they're selling 
live motion advertisements that pop up on the lock screen. Okay. Where, where it's almost impossible. And this doesn't happen on the kid. I, uh, Kendall it just seems to happen on mine, but it's almost impossible to like swipe those off without activating the ad. And that gets really, really annoying when I just want to like, I basically just use mine as a glorified Kindle. Like, you know, it's a, I don't really use most of the other options on it, but I don't really want that stuff popping into my Kindle while I'm trying to continue reading Dataclism or something like that. Right. Yeah. I, I, I do see that. On, I, my wife and I both have the paper. White, I don't know the, 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 the Kindle. That's just a Kindle just to read books. on. Right. I think there's a browser on there, but whatever. It's like Netscape 2.0. But um, <laughs> I am. Um, Jeez, um, I have noticed like the ads that pop on there when it's kind of like in lock screen or like, you know, you open it up before you, 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 you swipe to turn it on. There's an ad on there. I don't know. I, I, I don't I, mind, I don't mind ads. These are ads that are actually like videos that are playing. Oh, that's that gets a, really, yeah. like that's, that's a, that's like a bridge too far. Yeah, no, I get that. But no, I mean, I mean, look, all of these devices are just like, you know, gateway drugs to the ecosystem. That's why, especially for Amazon, they're so cheap. Like they can sell these at almost probably close to cost a, as they can, because the, they make the money on, prime and on all like the subscriptions yeah. and the content you buy on that but i don't know it's exciting that kind of you know my the kid's super excited i'm super excited um you know it, it, it and, you know we have this the the newness factor of it which is always good but i am interested to spend some time you know outside of the apple ecosystem like the closest thing we've done is well, i shouldn't say that we have yeah, it's a big step for you i mean this is. is this is like this is, you know, like living in Liechtenstein and then like suddenly deciding you're going to move to like Buenos Aires or something. Right. Like that. Yeah. Um, with a good. Well, we do have uh, we don't have the home pod because we're not idiots. We have uh, uh, our, our Google home. We have Google home for our voice stuff. But um, but yeah, I'm, I, I'm interested. It's good to know about the apps, because I think that's, you know, probably well, it sounds like a potential downfall of the system is that they don't have. You know, I know a lot of the, the, the kids Kindle comes with a lot of the apps that you need already installed or like yeah. easily accessible for it. Um, it's and- more like it's like there's a lot of basic stuff that's available. It's like anything extra that we get used to, yeah. you know, whether it's whether it's, you know, anything approaching a like a game like that's adult, that's 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 adult oriented. I don't mean like adult, you know what I mean? I know, like, yeah. uh, like games that aren't focused specifically on kids or trying to watch videos on a plane or stuff, like stuff that you wouldn't use all the time, but stuff that you like, I don't want to bring my laptop on the plane. So, Hey, right. I'll just bring my Kindle and Oh crap. I actually can't do that. Can't do anything uh, that sort it. of thing. Right. Yeah. So, so, well, good luck with that. I mean, obviously I've, I've, I've had a foot in and out of the Apple ecosystem, you know, for quite a while. We've got iPhones now and we didn't three years ago. Um, you know, and it's like, I, they, I feel like it's actually gotten better than when I left back in whatever that was, 2012 or 2013. And so it, 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 it has, I just, you know, it's, at the end of the day, it comes down to price. I mean, I'm not, you know, sure. and that's, that, that, that's a big, you know, and I understand Apple, how, why they, uh, why they price the way they do, why they kind of set themselves up the way they do. And I get that, but you know life changes and you know a $200 Chromebook or $120 Kindle looks a lot better than $400 for an iPad or right $1300 for a laptop which apparently loses keyboard keys all the time so anyway so, all right we, all right we've talked about craft beer and about uh electronics we've hit all we've hit our podcast quota i think we're good everybody wanted to hear about those things <laughs> 
But let's talk about other stuff. Um, So we had a couple other topics we wanted to hit today. Obviously, the big one in the media news right now, and you wrote a piece on it uh, that appeared on the the Sports Guy blog and will be appearing soon on the the, uh, MSJC website, is the New York Daily News layoffs, where uh, Tronk, is that how you pronounce it? Yes. The, what, I mean, are they... I mean, they're, they seem to just be the, the angel of death, like whatever that company actually does. That this is this is their primary goal is to go around and buy up newspapers and then lay a bunch of people off. Um, so they do that with the New York Daily News. And, you know, obviously, I think this is something that for people in middle America, they're kind of like, what's the New York Daily News? Because you hear about The Times, you hear about the New York Post. Um, you occasionally hear New York Daily News, but it's not the brand name in the middle of the country, I guess that it is in New York or on the Eastern seaboard. Mm-hmm. Um, but then even beyond the branding, we also hear, we've heard a lot of very negative commentary about, you know, the effects that this has. So I know you had a lot of thoughts on it. I just wanted to let you go with it for a little while. Yeah. I mean, I mean, it's, it's interesting because like, this is not a new story in our field, right? Newsroom being decimated by layoffs by a corporate owner. I mean, like I wrote in the right. piece, like it, that's one of the reasons I'm doing what I do. You know, I, I was working for a Gannett newspaper in the mid two thousands when it was, you know, every six months you go in and you wonder, am I going to get laid off? To, you know, they're announcing layoffs today. Am I coming home with a job? Am I coming home at midnight or am I coming home at four ten? Um, But this one, you know, this is, you know, felt in, in a lot of ways, you know, it gets very real loss to New York City in, in, in the media environment. I mean, it's very much the daily news is like the Post. It's a local tabloid. They're the ones covering news in and around New York City and the five boroughs. This is not like the Times where you're covering the world or whatever. This is a very provincial, in a good way, very provincial paper, you know, very, you know, very tabloidy in a very positive, positive and negative way. Um, so I think a lot of it, there's a real loss there. There's a symbolic loss because, I mean, this is, you know, New York is our major metro market and it's our biggest, b- biggest media market. It's kind of like the uh, in a lot of ways, I feel like it's the epicenter for a lot of journalism. Like you get a job in New York like that's, you know, a goal for, you know, especially maybe for people on the East Coast where I grew up. But that's a goal is, that you know, you work in New York City. And so to see this happening in the daily news and also just, you know, the scope of it, you know, half the newsroom getting laid off is just a staggering Number also, it's an easy one to think about laying off instead of just a number. You have half the positions cut. Uh, the sports department going from thirty-five people to nine. Um, yeah. They're no longer they're they're they're, stat, they're they're using wire copy for the Yankees and Mets, which is ludicrous um, on a lot of levels. Um, so I don't know. And, and part of the thing, well, one of the things I hit on in the piece, and this gets to you know, it touches on a conversation I had with Brian Curtis. Uh, back at Ajax for the other 51. But it was, uh, you know, the bad guy kind of here. Like, Tronk is an easy villain here. For one thing, they have a ridiculous sounding name. I mean, that's yeah, I mean, that's like that's like the that's like the stock bad company in a superhero movie name. Like totally. Yeah. Like you would have looked at that and said, you guys really needed to be more creative than this. No kidding. Uh, so, so they have a ridiculous name, you know, there are all sorts of stories. And I think, uh, Burneko had a great piece in Deadspin on how the former, uh, CEO or head of trunk got a $15 million golden parachute when he left, uh, the company over, well, over some allegations and stuff. And it just kind of has that general, you know, uh, corporate, uh, 1% versus 99% deal. 
Um, but also, I mean, it, it, it just kind of, you know, if we're going to look at this issue of media economics and, and of news economics, you know, I can't get past the fact that, you know, you know, like Curtis said, sometimes the villain is just the world. And, you know, this is a, you know, since 2000, since kind of the overall emer- uh, emergence of and dominance of digital and online media, um, you know, the 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 business model that sustained all media, but for our purposes here, sustained print journalism for more than a hundred years, that model doesn't just doesn't work in this era. It was a model built for a specific time and for a specific time and place and conditions. Those conditions no longer apply. And it's not as easy as saying, well, pay for local news and to support it. Yes, that's important. Yes, that's, that's critical, but that alone is not going to save it. You know, it's not like, you know, it's um you know corporate ownership yes that's bad but ad- advertising going to google and and craigslist and yeah th- all of these things kind of come into play here and then you add add on to that like the ridiculously complicated corporate structures that happen i mean th- it's similar to a toys r us situation where it's not right. just that people weren't bu- were buying stuff on amazon and toys r us it's more that at a corporate level they're saddled with such huge debt that they can't get out from under it and they have to declare bankruptcy so I don't know. Yeah. It's it's just that thing where like this is that you know there's no I, I I didn't write this in the piece, but I was thinking about it. Like Tronk is the villain here, and so is Alden Capital from the Denver Post, and you know Advance and Gannett and all these you know all all these companies. Like they're all the bad guy, and I agree with that they are. But if there were a viable business model for online uh, online newspapers. I, I, it would have been found by now. They would have, there's an incentive for them to find it and there isn't. So I, I don't, I don't or, know if I agree with that. Okay. I, I'm, st- I'm stating this poorly, but it just, go well, ahead. Okay. Here's, I, what, here's, what what I mean. Mean. here's what I mean. Yeah. I, I don't know that there's been an incentive on the business side of news to find a model online that works because you still have, as we see, these decaying husks of traditional media entities like the Daily News or like the Denver Post or the Chicago Tribune or the LA Times or any of them that can still be milked dry by hedge funds and investors who are looking simply to take the corporate structure and milk it for all it's worth and then leave the assets rotting in the sun. Right. Um, that's what happened with Toys R Us. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, it, it wasn't the Toys R Us stopped working because people were just buying stuff online. It was because the people that owned it, the people that bought it, had no interest in modernizing it. You know, the same thing had happened with Sears. The same thing happened with a bunch of other places, Circuit City. Um, So, like, I think sometimes there's a kind of an overarching idealism, particularly among journalists, that doesn't serve them well in these sorts of circumstances. Because the idea is, oh, we're going to find a way to make this work and make it better than ever. That's, that's how a lot of stuff like thought wise gets applied as far as journalists are concerned. There's not a lot of cynicism. Um, and there probably should be, because I think if you look at the, the root causes of a lot of the downturn, yeah, certainly ad sales have dropped through the floor, but you know, but the root cause of the, the business problems in journalism has been, there's almost no financial incentive to modernize news because you're going to make less money right. doing it. And you'd you'd rather bankrupt the assets that you have than voluntarily become leaner 
and meaner because it's not going to result in higher profits. It's going to result in, in quite the right. opposite. Um, you know, so so that's the way I look at it. I, 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 I you know, I, I read your piece and certainly I've thought about it a lot. And, you know, I think the there's a there's a disconnect. And we've talked about this before on this show several times between the people who are doing journalism and whose reaction to this is, oh, my God, why aren't people supporting journalism? You know, this woe is us mentality. And then the public who's like, what are you talking about? Like, I go read stuff. I, I, you know, I click on things. I do everything that I did before. In fact, I probably consume more news than I did before the Internet came along. Like, what what the hell do right. you want me to do? Um, and the accusation is basically that it's the public's fault that journalism is, is or, you know, that newspapers are are dying when it's like, no, that's like the public has very little to do with it. This idea that the public one day just decided to will newspapers out of existence just flies in the face mm -hmm. of reality. Um, and so it's like, you know, to some degree, there has to be a, a delineation between God, what's happening at the Denver Post sucks and what's happening at the Daily News sucks. And we need to figure out a way to fix this. And then the immediate visceral reaction from journalists, especially on social media, being you need you people need to support your local media when already I think a lot of people are the tools that they've been given to support local media by local media are inadequate to sustain local media. So what's the public supposed to do at that point? Right. I mean, I mean, that, and that's kind of what I was trying to get at at the, at the point too, is that it's a larger, so much a larger issue than just people aren't reading, you know, people are reading news for free or, you know, the inane argument that, you know, newspapers should have charged for online content right from the beginning. And they made a mistake of putting stuff online for free. And, I won't get into all the reasons that that's a flawed bullshit argument, but the main one is having worked in online media in 1999, nobody was willing to pay for news or content in 1999, like even less oh. or anything. I, I, and, I, why, I think. and why was that? I partly. So my, my read on the situation has always been partly because of the kind of ethos of the internet back in the early days, like 19, let's say 1996 to 2001. It was very much this idea of information should be free. It wasn't a, a as hugely a commercial space as it is now. Also, like I remember people being scared crapless of buying stuff online. Like, like there was a spending money online was weird and you didn't do it. And you're going to get your, you're going to, they're going to, people are going to steal your money. Like it was a big security risk. I remember this being a thing and it just, it, it, it just, you know, for me and someone, you know, when I teach this, I kind of point to two things that, that changed it. I think first, obviously the big one is the iTunes store when that launched in what, 2003, 2004, you know, that was the yeah. direct result, the, the, the direct answer to Napster and file sharing and, all that in the music industry, but that was the first time. Like, and, and you know, this is something that we're working uh, on a on a piece on together. You know, that was the first kind of bundle breaking in terms of media, and it was the first time you could buy a song instead of the whole album, um, and that kind of got people to like, okay, I can buy this, I, I can spend money on this, and it kind of became okay. And then for me, the second one, I tweeted about this last night. The second part of it is Netflix, and you know, this idea of I'm going to pay a subscription for streaming content. And I, 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 I just feel like that was, you know, right time, right place. You know, I'm not saying there's a Netflix for news out there, but I feel like those are the two things that kind of made it 
for lack of a better word, okay to pay for content online. Whereas before then, there was a whole lot of resistance or not doing that. And I feel yeah. like, and also they made it, you know, and for a lot of reasons, like they made it okay. They made it between iTunes and then now what has happened with Spotify, but also Netflix. Like it's so easy and the quality is good that it makes piracy not a, a more of a challenge to do. Like there's no need, you know, there's always going to be a need to pirate things. Need. There's always right. need, there's always want, but now it's just as easy to, well, it's going to be on Netflix in a month. I can wait or something like that rather yeah. than do that. So, well, and the, the whole concept of media ownership when it comes to that stuff is certainly oh, changed. That's, and right? that's a fascinating question right now about yeah. ownership, about with streaming and owning and all that. Yeah. But see, here's okay. So I think you supplied part of the answer. And the other part we actually, I think, talked about in our last podcast, which was news organizations so debased the value of the news because they made most of their money passively through advertising rather than actively through people paying for the news. Mm -hmm. And and that was the case forever. And it's like one day and, and, and the problem was it didn't just it wasn't like in 1996 or 1999 when the Internet came along. Companies said, oh, actually, you're going to have to pay for this now. It was that they waited until like 2009. Right. Yeah. To say that. And by that point, it was too late because when you've given something away for for basically free through the entire history of print and video and then actually for free on the internet for the first 15 years that people were on the internet right. to suddenly turn around and say, Oh, you got to pay for this now. And Oh, by the way, if you don't, you're the reason journalism's failing. Right. Like that, that didn't work. Right. Um, so I think there's a couple of now, you know, you, you mentioned earlier this idea that, you know, there's probably not a Netflix for news. Why, how do we know? No one's tried. No, that's I, okay. Yeah, I, I, I know. I see what you're saying. I, I've, you know, I, I say there's not a Netflix for news just because I feel like that's always been in like this might be a Forbes type article, but like that's the where's the Netflix <laughs> for news or something like that. And so I'm kind of tired of that idea as like a th this this. Well, I, 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 guess, I think the idea, yeah, the basic idea is like there's no innovation. Like yes. still, and and the, you know, the the, the this is where when I look at journalism and journalism education, I'm like, man, is like, where are the entrepreneurship classes? Mm -hmm. Where, where are the, where are the classes that not just teach you how to write, but also teach you how to effectively market your own stuff online? Um, you know, because w what we're looking at is basically a blank slate where there's not a huge amount of money being made on it. And if you can find a way to monetize what you do, you've got a fighting chance in this marketplace. And maybe the first or second, uh, you know, itinerations of this won't be successful, but maybe the third one will, because you got to go through some failures before you finally get to a success. And I right. think that you know, that's the thing that irritates me about when I read about this New York Daily News stuff. Yeah, I get I get sad about the fact that all these people lost their jobs. And yet it's certainly a blow to the traditional masthead style journalism that's existed in New York City for 150 years. But it doesn't have to be tied to a big brand in order to be good journalism. And yet all the reactions are basically, you know, this is a this is a death blow for freedom in the city. It's like, well, like if you're thinking about things strictly in these concepts of brand names, yes, but this 
like it's as terrible, but it's also an opportunity for somebody to do something that's going to move the bar forward rather than just sitting there and lamenting what we've lost from the past. So how come there hasn't been not just in newspapers, but where is, you know, why I, I guess when I say this, it, it's a weird thing to kind of come out to, to to explain. But like it's that idea, like why if the if the possibility exists for this, why hasn't it been done yet? Is it, it has it, no in news. I mean, in, in specifically, what, it, in ha, it has been done in news. If you look at, I mean, if 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 Gawker doesn't get sued into oblivion, that's a model that grew up in the early ages of widespread web usage that was very valid journalistically and still is in many cases, and was entirely focused on re- reporting on New York. Um, you know, I mean. Vice Media grew up in that exact same environment. And yeah, they've had some financial issues, but that's still a viable company. I mean, there there have been examples of success in changing the paradigm. I think the problem is that, you know, journalism, the, the mentality of journalism is always so tied up in in legacy branding where, you know, you, you point to the top of the hill. And if you're a journalist, you want to get to the top of the hill and report. And yeah, you're supposed to go to along those, those smaller steps along the way to get there, but there are always steps along the way. Mm. And, you know, I think like that legacy media, how old is the New York times? Mm. What? 1850, yeah, something, like, something like that. Sure. I mean, you're talking about a tremendous amount of brand building and, and history, but it was all really through legacy media. It's kind of a surprise. And it's just, frankly, due to its its branding and its financial situation that the Times and the Post and some of these other major news outlets have, been, ma- have managed to survive this far, um, you're kind of having to start from scratch because, as you said, it's not an era of scarcity. It's an era of abundance. It's an era when, you know, something like 80 percent or 85 percent of the American public can get online, which is far more than the percentage of people ever read newspapers. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so and it's also an era when the distinction between being a newspaper and being a television station and being a radio station has broken down largely. And so the idea that uh, why haven't things changed? I think they have. I just I think they haven't continued from what we were used to 30 years ago. And that bothers me. or they haven't done it at scale or they haven't done it, you know, right. beyond like. A, a, a site here and there, a thing here and there that, that has I, had success. Think, think, Think about think about what oil companies looked like in 1900 versus what oil companies look like in 2000. I mean, it's it took a long, long time once the trusts were busted and 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 so forth for companies to even get back to to a certain percentage of the market share that like you know Standard Oil had. I mean, like you, when you have these paradigm shifts in industry, you're going to get. Um, you're going to have to have a resetting of expectations about what is possible and and the breadth of, of things that are possible. And I just like newspapers were so dominant for so long because they had so much money from so much advertising and and it funded so many positions. And, you know, the expectation has been we need to maintain that status quo, if not build on it. And when that gets cut, you know, for whatever reason, and obviously in this case, it's it's traditional robber barons right. doing their robber baron things like they did to the railroads a hundred and some years ago. You know, we we react negatively to that, and I understand why. But as soon as as soon as the the crash and advertising dollars hit, we should have been waiting for these days to come, where these these big entities that used to command ridiculously large newsrooms were not going to be able to financially sustain themselves. You know, and and we can lament 
a past that is, you know, that was financially much more lucrative, but that doesn't do a whole lot for the actual practice of the thing that everybody's supposed to be focusing. Right. I think we can kind of tie a bow on this is this is going to be an ongoing thing. It's something we're writing a lot about and thinking a lot about um, in terms of the athletic and going forward. Um, But I I think one of the issues and I, I touch on this in the piece and I think it's it's you know, worth always worth mentioning. I think one of the the issues kind of from a more pro journalist journalist standpoint is that, um, you know, journalism is not a commodity. And it, and, and a lot of the, the this new media tends to, you know, this environment tends to measure things as if they are a commodity, you know, like, you know, and it gets into the idea of using metrics and analytics and, you know, what gets shared most and, and being what what's focused on and, 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 you know, putting out resources and, um, and, Allocating resources. Sorry, I lost my train of thought there. But I think, but I do feel like there's there's a service aspect to it, and there is you know a continuity and a, and a community aspect of journalism um, that does tend to get lost when 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 things when when cuts get made um, and you know huge cuts like this. And I don't know. I you know I I, I do think that there you know we've talked about this before. There's the idea of separating the idea of the daily newspaper from journalism. And what we need now, this is a Clay Shirky line joint from 10 years ago, so I'm just ripping him off. But the idea is not that we need more newspapers. The idea is that we need, need more journalism. And the two, I think at this point you're making, the two are not, you know, it, those two are not mutually exclusive things. Um, and, and, you know, I just, when you, you know, when, when you struggle to find a, 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 a long-term viable business model. I think that's, I think the struggle here is that you can find business models that may work in the short term, but do they, you know, what kind of staying power do they have? I don't know. Like I said, I've said before, I'll say again, if I knew the answer to this, I'd be, I wouldn't, my vacation wouldn't be to, to Plymouth, Massachusetts. My house would be in Plymouth, Massachusetts, but, um, <laughs> but you know, well, go ahead. I, I get what you're saying. I, I guess, we don't know what a long-term business plan is because there's been not much incentive to try to create right. one up to right. this point, you know? And I mean, sites that have sustained, you know, Gawker being a good example, minus the legal troubles. I mean, they, they managed to sustain and do some pretty good work because they were able to find a system that kind of, you know, used certain things to pay for other things. You see it now in their style where, yeah, I mean, they they still do investigative journalism and they still cover things in depth in ways that traditional media won't, but they also have, you know, very clear commercial incentive written pieces, you know, talking mm-hmm. about, oh, here's the latest cool stuff on Amazon. And, you know, here's these things that you should probably buy. And there's nothing wrong with those pieces, uh, you know, but that it, these are, I think, among the things that you have to be, at least willing to consider. And look, as time goes by and we look at how subscription models work, I mean, I I think that long term, you know, the what the Post is doing, what the New York Times is doing, I think those are going to be sustainable models, because ultimately, what you're doing is you're you're not just getting people to pay for news, you're you're retraining people's mentalities about what is expected in delivery of news. Mm -hmm. Um, And this is something where so to take a different topic entirely, but tie it into this, you know, the, the rise of democratic socialist politicians and people who are willing to, as politicians, identify their views as socialist in nature, 
um, you know, that would have been political suicide a decade ago. Mm-hmm. And yet now it's not. It, it is among certain groups of people. I was listening to a 538 podcast about this today. Oh, I saw, that's in but, my queue. I can't wait to that sound, it sounded like an interesting discussion. It, it, it is. I mean, I'm only about halfway through it. But, you know, if you grew up in the Cold War, you have a much more negative connotation of the word socialist than you do if you're a, a late stage millennial. Mm-hmm. You know, if you if you grew up and you equated social, as they said in the podcast, if you equate socialism with the USSR uh, or with, you know, failed states or, or repressive regimes like Castro's Cuba or whatever, you're probably going to have a negative connotation for the word socialism and ideas that are associated with that. Whereas if you associate the word socialism with, you know, Canadian healthcare or Norway or, you know, places like that, you're going to be a lot more receptive, not just to the core concept, Mm -hmm. but also the idea that, hey, this is something we would entertain in politics. And so it's the same thing with journalism and with news and with the idea that if I grew up in the 80s or 90s, the idea of paying more than a pittance for reading a news story, if if anything at all, is probably pretty foreign to right. me. Um, you know, but I never I never had a built-in expectation that I would get music for free. It was like someone left the store door open and we just ran in and grabbed as much as right. we could. And then when they put the lock back on, it was like, okay, fine, I guess we have to pay for this again. It wasn't like we we just immediately had an expectation that for the rest of time music was going to be free. And I think for news, like you know, millennials and people that are younger than them are now growing up in an era where there's yep. an expectation you're going to have to pay a subscription yep. to read news. And and that that has to happen before we can have any sort of discussion about what's going to be effective or not effective long term as far as a business model. That's a good point. Yeah. So so don't be depressed, I guess, is my my message to you. OK, unless you actually lost your job from The New York Daily News this week or in any or have lost your job well, in any, any other again, newspaper, then you're allowed to be depressed. That, is what I'm saying. That's but, but see, and this is where I think we have to separate the emotion of that and and the feeling of the profession being under attack from the fact that this is a disruptive business entity right now or a, a, a business model that's being disrupted. And that. You know, I mean, this is something that's happened a lot. I mean, I grew up in the Midwest. I I watched people getting laid off from factories and people getting laid off from, uh, you know, from a bunch of different, you know, jobs that people thought were going to be there forever because they've been there for two or three generations by that right. point. So I really I do get it. I'm I'm not insensitive to it. And, and I certainly feel for those people. Um, and it certainly doesn't make their day any better to say, well, you know, five or 10 years, I think we'll probably be fine. Hmm. But but it, but it is important that we we realize there's a there's a big change going on right now and i just think that you know the all the people who did jump out of the journalism field i don't blame them because you you know to some degree you have to look at the environment and say i need to get out from in front of the train before the train runs over me because the train is eventually going to run over most people in this business and And then once it's off the tracks, a new train gets built in its place that's a lot more adapted to the environment that surrounds us. I think the the danger in it right now is there's not that new inventive train coming down. I mean, the one the one thing I would argue against the uh, the the analogy of journalism losing their jobs to factories closing is that those cars are still getting made. They're just getting made somewhere else. Now, that has 
economic impact, of course, but people who are losing, you know, is journalism, are the same stories being covered in the same way? I don't think so. Or I don't think it's as, I don't think it's as clean cut as that. And I think that that's where kind of like that, where I was talking about that kind of like journalism as a, as a commodity. I don't think that, I don't think that, that there's the same coverage. I I don't. I mean, you, you're, you're, you're probably right. And, and not right at the same time in as much as no, the same stories aren't getting covered. But the other aspect of it is the, the era of advertising money abundance, you know, created newsrooms that you can look at them one of two ways. You can either say, you know, how big was the sports desk at the New York daily news? Uh, 35, 35. I mean, with, with writers, editors, I don't know if there's a photog involved in that. I don't know. So, what you know? What was it in in 1920? Right. I don't. I can't answer that. Yeah. I, I mean, so I mean, like you get used to a certain level of largesse, and and you can even not call it largesse, just a certain level of staffing, and say this is the normal, and anything below this is unacceptable because stories aren't going to get covered, and and you might be completely right, or you could say that was an artificially inflated figure. I mean, because look, we you 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 don't have to go back very far in sports journalism just to to take an example. You know, to see, you know, newspapers sending, you know, flying three reporters across country to cover a Super Bowl that has no local interest in it whatsoever. Um, you know, stuff like that was was fairly commonplace for a long time because the money was there. And right. I don't know what I don't know. Like, I'm not sure if we're going to take a cold, hard look at the business and look for models that work. I'm not sure that we can do that and also say you know, that there's, we can't do some kind of commodification or some kind of analysis and say these things probably were only a result of the economic environment we were in, as opposed to the natural state of being as far as what needed to be covered. So I think, so I think I do agree with you. I think, I think that that does kind of frame it the right way is that I think as a newspaper industry and people who look at the newspaper industry and study it, I think the, 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 maybe the, maybe what I'm hearing is the fundamental error that we're making is we're con- saying this old mo- this old time of like let's say large as you say like 70s 80s 90s type of staffing that is the uh, our error isn't saying that is the ideal and that is what we should strive to do rather than okay now now that was then that was the model this is now what can we do how can we do it best now that's what that's basically what i'm saying and yes, and that's i got you okay. you know and i Again, I I think you can look at the the second half of the 20th century in all media, really, as a kind of a bubble, which we didn't know mm-hmm. was a bubble because nobody could have predicted the disruptive effect that the Internet and the democratization of content was going to have on on media messages. Right. Um, but it's had that effect. And, you know, it's and it, it's it's not it's it, it's certainly you you're not going to win any friends at parties by saying, well, your your industry was too big and you were paying for too many things that you shouldn't have been paying for because, you know, no one wants to look at their business that way. I mean, I think, hell, education might be like that right now. We might be looking back at education in 20 years and saying, man, that got really overextended. Right. Um, but but I think the reality is there's there, there's going to have to be a reckoning in terms of what actually equates to the 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 amount of coverage that you need to have in a community versus the amount of coverage we have the luxury of affording a community 
And there's always going to be people that argue that whatever level of coverage is going on, whatever level of support, that it's not enough, that there needs to be more, that there's more stories to tell. And and maybe that's the case. But I don't think we're at a point right now because of this financial changeover that's going on to be able to have that particular stance and have it stick for any amount of time. No, I think you're right on that one. So um, on a a somewhat, and this is a, a journalism note. Let's stick with this. Uh, we'll, we'll hit our last topic here. There was a tweet that I think it was yesterday from um, noted New York Times reporter Maggie Haberman, oh, mm-hmm. uh, where she announced she was stepping away from Twitter. She wrote a piece. And, I think she wrote a Sunday op-ed about this. If I if okay, I, it was okay. a Sunday op-ed. That's right. The, the tweet was to the op-ed. My my mistake. Okay. But. Um, but so she writes this op-ed and and basically kind of rehashes many of the things that we've talked about. Not that she she didn't. I mean, we're just simply rehashing the things that we said, but they very much matched what we'd said earlier on at, at certain times in the podcast about some of the, the problems with Twitter and certainly being on Twitter uh, as someone whose job is to report on the White House. Uh, and you know anybody that's that's paid any attention to Trump coverage and paid any attention to the sorts of backs and back and forth that goes on on Twitter and has seen uh, Maggie Haberman's mentions probably wasn't that shocked that she came out and said you know this is just this is I'm not getting anything positive out of this interaction anymore so I'm not going to do it for a while. Um, what was your reaction to that piece? Um, it was very similar to. Uh, we had this discussion, I don't know, eight, seven, four seasons ago, however <laughs> we decided our seasons, when I think it was, uh, we talked about Wright Thompson uh, going away from Twitter, not being on Twitter, right. um, and, and kind of a sports writer saying, I, I, I thought the same thing. I, I guess I thought the same thing. Like, it's a luxury as a media member to be able to do that. Um, I, you know, but at the same time, you know, I think you know, in the two plus years we've been doing this podcast, I think a lot has changed about Twitter and it's, you know, kind of centered around President Trump, but I don't think it's all necessarily him. Um, I think that, you know, I don't know um, how much, you know, value I, I, I often thought, cause I'd like, I tend, I tend to like Maggie Haberman as a, as a journalist. I think she's a good reporter. There was an interesting thread going around accusing her of being like Trump's uh, PR person. Yes mouthpiece which i thought was it was interesting was a, i thought it, it was, was a little over the top it was a little self-selective it was a perfect, of, it was a perfect encapsulation of her argument i thought yes yeah exactly like um like she's never written anything negative about him but but we have like seven pieces that she wrote positively so of course she is uh she's a mouthpiece for him i don't know it it it, it for you know, so, for someone in that position, I often wonder, like, what is the value of it? Aside from maybe, you know, you know, Maggie Haberman doesn't need to tweet out her own links to get them read. She's the lead political writer for The New York Times. They're go- it's going to get shared by the paper. Right. So I don't know. Yeah, I, I you know, I, I often wonder, like, um, you know, I remember and, and, and I'm interested in your thoughts because I know in the course of the two years we've been doing this, we've. I almost say it, we flipped, but you've kind of flipped on Twitter. I remember wanting to take a Twitter break and you like talking me out of it. And like, you know, this is what the medium is for. And thanks for keeping me on the on that platform, you jerk. Yeah. But um, but I am wondering, like, what changes? Because I, I do feel like, you know, in a way for journalists, I feel like in the early 2000s, 
late 2000s, early 2010s, we uh, there was this rush to kind of get on Twitter and kind of understanding what made, you know, how Twitter fit into the journal, you know, journalism as a whole and, you know, what changed about journalism and how we used it and what didn't change. And, you know, how we how journalism, there's some great research, how journalists normalized Twitter and just it didn't really change much. It just, you know, they adopted uh, traditional journalism norms to Twitter rather than the other way around. But it does feel different and it does feel less. Like I I I don't know. I guess I come back to the I never feel good when I spend a lot of time on Twitter. I'm wondering what your what you how you've seen the, this platform change in the past few years. It's it's descent has almost exactly mirrored the descent that I witnessed on message boards in the 2000s. They are the first okay. decade. Yep. In as much as it started off as a cool selective group of people sharing ideas and enjoying the fact that. They could instantly connect with people that they were not geographically close to. And those people had different concepts and and ideas than they did. As more and more people have joined it, the dialogue's gotten coarser. The, and and the interactions have gotten uh, certainly much more uh, harsh. And in many cases, I think just intolerable uh, for people. And the higher you are up the food chain, in any industry, whether it's sports or media or politics, um, you're basically there for people to take pot shots at and then run away. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, you know, to me, it's it's created an environment that yeah, I don't know, like other than posting your stories and interacting with other people at your strata, I don't know what you would do on it. Like right. I. Uh, that's basically what I do. I, you know, and occasionally I will invite people to talk and I don't, I don't have it bad. Like no one goes after me on Twitter or haven't for years. I think a couple of, couple of years ago, somebody did, but it wasn't that big of a deal. But I look at, I look at what uh, particularly media members go through and you know, it is, it is just a constant churn of everybody's worst selves Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, tweeting things that they would never or probably, well, maybe they would now say in person, but historically would not say in person. And, you know, I, when I read her piece, you know, I, I thought it was a pretty good summation of the problems. You know, there's just, it's, it, it has become a, a battleground, not even of real people per se, but, you know, in many cases of bots not all the time and certainly not a majority, but certain, you know, but you know, you, you don't know who you're arguing with. Even the people that aren't bots, but are real human beings seem to be so stripped of humanity in their conversation that it's basically like having a conversation with just like a really angry computer. Um, and you know, I mean, it's certainly still good for breaking news and it's certainly still good for, um, you know, the occasional insight into a public figure that you might not get otherwise, but the rest of it just seems very performative. Uh, it's, it's, it's very much a, a medium. I think that, yeah, it's certainly making more money now than it was before, but in terms of a place for any sort of like reasonable or interesting discourse, I'm, I, I have very little use for it at this stage. And I think that a lot of people in those positions I've talked to you know media members on the sports side who hate the fact they have to go on Twitter. I know that there was you know the, the argument originally was you guys have to be out there because we have to promote these stories because we got to get clicks. And this kind of goes back to our 
our earlier discussion about the terrible business model of of journalism and of newspapers. And, you know, so they forced all these journalists on Twitter to go talk with the audience. And they're not really talking with their audience. They're talking with people angry enough to get on a Twitter account right. and yell at them. And that's not really your audience. And so I, I the, the Haberman piece, I think, was uh, a really good diagnosis of a disease that is spread throughout that medium. And I don't know if there's a good answer for how to fix it. No, I don't think there is. I mean, because there's, you know, I'm, I'm just reading all this stuff about like and you see with Facebook and uh, Twitter not banning hate speech or not banning, um, you know, kind of clamping down on, you know, alt-right people for, you know, advocating violence or potentially advocating for violence on people. And I just don't know. I wonder if there, if we see a future uh, where Twitter's not valuable for journalism anymore, just because of all this, like, is the, is well, the, is the good outweighed? Does, is there good and bad? And you know what I mean? Here's, here's what I think would be valuable is a, and this is, <laughs> it's funny that we, we would get to this point, but we, I would, I think people maybe even would pay money to go on a service where um, only verified accounts tweeted. Okay. And and so you were basically using it as far more of a one-way communication device, almost like a live news ticker with a bunch of personalities. Okay. Rather than a completely open, you know, quasi-democratic uh, conversation area. Uh, you know, I think that... To some degree, the people that use it for news, which is the, the I still think is probably the number one usage. I haven't looked at the, the latest Pew numbers, but the people that are looking for it for news, frankly, don't care that much about what people who aren't in positions of authority to talk about things have to say. Occasionally, you'll get that case. Mm -hmm. uh, and certainly on the local sports scene, sometimes, you know, you'll get non-verified accounts that will have some interesting things to say. But in terms like I think the, the biggest issue right now is the number of tweets from people you don't follow that end up in your yes, timeline. I was just, I'm looking at Twitter um, right now. The and, and when it became a like, like someone liked it and it shows up in your feed, yeah. like that just, yeah. Yeah. And, but, but, you know, so, but, so I think there might be an, an, some kind of a, an appetite for that sort of a service where, okay, I'm just going to, I just want to see what, what, what are the people in the news saying? Right. Not, I'm going to see what people in the news are saying and then have to fight through 10,000 retweets of things that I'm not really that interested in or that that don't match what I'm mm -hmm. curious about. Um, you know, but if you're on the other side of it, I think that there's an argument to be made that, you know, you're at the end of the day. Yeah, you're a reporter or you're a coach or you're an athlete or you're a politician. Um, and in all cases, except maybe the politicians, right. you're also a human being. And, you know, so as a result, you you know, like why, like why expose yourself right. to that level of abuse? Like none, none of the, nobody that works in media when they, you know, when they went to media school or when they went to journalism school, was there ever any statement that, Hey, right. by the way, a bunch of people are going to hate your guts and they're going to actively and loudly talk about how that, much they hate your guts. And they're going to say it to your face. The same thing goes for athletes. Same thing goes for actors. And that's at um, best not even getting into. They're going to send the police after you after uh, phoning in a fake 911 call at your house saying yeah. you're a home intruder and potentially kill you. Right, right. So, you know, th there's just this this was an interesting idea. And when there weren't that many people on it, it, it worked fairly well. But just like message boards, well, you know, I remember you know, I was a very early adopter of message boards. Mm -hmm. I've, I've told this story before, maybe on the podcast, but I grew up in the you know, in the, this was in the mid 90s. 
I grew up in in West Lafayette, Indiana, right, out in the country, and I was an IU basketball fan. And you couldn't get IU basketball news up there because it was the, you know that's where Purdue University is, which is the number one rival. And so I remember going online on the internet for the first time in like '94 or '95 and being really excited that I could find other people that liked IU basketball. Mm-hmm. And yeah, there were you know there were some bad apples in the bunch, but by and large, it was a pretty respectful group of people who just wanted to communicate with each other. And then five years later, the you know the the spaces that had been free were rapidly becoming cesspools of arguments and you know, people going to ridiculous extremes to to try to, you know, prove their particular points right or wrong. And it just, you know, particularly with the IU basketball beat, that was a bad time because Bob Knight was getting fired at that point and it was just a bad situation. And so what happened in many places was a lot of these sites went to a subscription model where now you had to pay in order to get to that particular message board. There was still a free message board, but all of the smart posters, all the people that were on there and really wanted to talk basketball would go to the premium forum. And for like five or six years, the premium forum was the place to be. It was much calmer. It was much easier to deal with people. And then, you know, around 2000, somewhere between 2005, 2010, the trolls that had occupied the free boards suddenly realized, hey, it's worth the hundred bucks for me to pay to go troll people right. on the premium board. And that's kind of like you could you could offer like a paid version of Twitter and it'd probably be great for two years. And then the trolls would realize, hey, all I got to do is put the money up and they're not going to kick me right. off and then I can do whatever I want. So this is this is a common like this, this like the discourse de-evolution. Mm-hmm. I don't even know if that's a thing. It should be. But that's it seems to be commonplace um, in, in any public communication space. I'm sure that if we looked at letters to the editor over time, we'd probably see a similar trend where, you know, the the discourse just gets coarser and, and just altogether shittier because people, you know, given the opportunity, will always try to figure out a way to make their point in a way that is baser than the way that the previous person yeah. did. I mean, letters to the editor, I mean, at least those were gate kept. Like there was an editor well, who that's, published and that's the thing. Yeah. So, um, well, and that's the thing with I get I get I got some of the outrage with the the Zuckerberg thing about well we don't want to we're not going to censor people on Facebook unless they're purposefully being disinformational. A, I mean there is a real free speech thing there where you know you this idea you know, I mean about we need to regulate hate speech is like that's not yeah. what the Constitution says. Um, and 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 you know you're you're comfortable with Facebook being the ones legit, like you know legislating that and figuring out how right. to do it. I certainly am not. Um, but the larger issue is even if they wanted to, how do you edit and gatekeep a site that's got 2 billion people? On? Yeah, I have no idea. That's yeah. Like there's, I mean, that's like even Twitter, which only has like, I don't know what, two, 300 million people on it. Like that's an, that would be a, an editing impossibility to do that in real time. I mean, like the whole idea of, of these sites is that, there's a there's a real time aspect to the conversation. You're going to hold everything in queue. Who the hell's going to be able to actually properly like gatekeep that stuff? Right. And then all it takes is one person uh, gatekeeping away something that a whole bunch of people want to see or think is, a you know, and then it's a whole it's a it's a mess. So, yeah, I don't know. So, I, I, I mean, yeah. There's no I just thought it was interesting because Haberman is the first really big profile political uh, journalist, and so I certainly haven't seen this happen very much in sports, other than Wright Thompson, who I don't think counts because he's he's a features writer. Right. At the end of the day, I you know the first like day to day 
reporter who's just been like, you know what? Screw this. This is not worth it. And I'm going to just go back and doing my job. Right. And, you know, I, I do wonder if we don't start to see a trend after this election cycle, um, you know, because, you, you know, it's like you get the trade off of, well, everybody knows who Maggie Haberman is because largely because of Twitter. But the downside is everybody knows who Maggie Haberman is. Right. So. So anyway, any final thoughts before we wrap up? No, I think I think uh, I think you summed it up really nicely there, and uh, I'm looking forward to seeing what my Kindle, my daughter's Kindle battery life is now. It was 67 yeah. when we took it out of the box. I'm hoping it's above 30. So, well, we'll keep our fingers crossed on that. And it, it, it's it's not too bad unless she's watching videos. That's where it starts to really wear down. Well, so we'll, you know, we'll see what damage she's done to uh, to that so far. So, uh, I I will be thinking of you. Thank you. Uh, Thoughts and process. prayers. Anyway. If you'd like to contribute to the flip side, we don't have a Patreon. We should probably start one. Yes, we uh, if if you'd like, we do. No, we don't. But we should. Oh, we don't. Yeah. We should. We'll get that going. Yeah. Anyway, I don't know why you'd want to contribute to us, but if some for some reason you did, we'd, we'd, we'd we we'll find a way to make it happen. Anyway, if you'd like to talk with us, it is uh, Doctor GC on Twitter. I guess I just rail, railed on Twitter for so could, long. Maybe I should give you my. I, get me on Instagram. You'll just find me there. It's fine. But uh, BP Moritz also on Twitter. Yeah. Uh, for Brian and uh, we'll be back not next week, but the week after uh, with, uh, with more stuff on uh, the media sports, beer, whatever it is that we do. So for Brian Moritz, I'm Galen Clavio. We'll catch you folks on the flip side. So long everybody.